Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. Our discussion today is about neuropsychology. The neuropsychological evaluation has been a standard component of the dementia workup for many years. When someone is referred for an evaluation, however, most people really have not heard the term before and are not certain what to expect from a neuropsychologist. Our guest today is Dr. Jared Benj. Dr. Benj is an assistant professor of medicine at Texas A&M University Health Sciences Center College of Medicine. He is at Scott & White Medical Center in Temple, Texas. He completed his Ph.D. in neuropsychology at the University of Houston in 2008, and he is a diplomate of the American Board of Professional Psychology. His interests involve primarily dementia, movement disorders, seizure disorders, and brain trauma. So come on in, grab a cup of coffee, and pull up a chair. Let's talk with Dr. Jared Benj. Dr. Benj, welcome to the program. Hey, Dr. Brinkman. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. I met you many years ago, and you had an infectious love of the central nervous system the same way that I have had, and uh, I am so thankful that I can now call you Dr. B the way that you have always called me Dr. B. So, Dr. B, how are you? I'm doing well. No, Sam, uh, thank you so much for, for uh, all of your, your years of, of help and uh, mentorship. I, I had no idea this field existed uh, until I uh, just on a lark went and interviewed with you for an undergraduate project. And, and here I am, <laughs> uh, I guess, a decade later uh, following in your footsteps. And, and I so, really appreciate all your mentorship. So things got sticky and you couldn't get back loose, could you? Uh, that's right. That's right. You, you, you make a good sales pitch. We'll put it that way. <laughs> well, Jared, would you explain for our listeners what the field of neuropsychology is? Yeah, most definitely. I, I uh, you can imagine, I end up having to explain that a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> neuropsychology is is a really kind of interesting field in, in its purest sense. You can you can think of neuropsychology as the field that tries to understand brain behavior relationships, uh, and and so uh, uh, if you think about psychology. Uh, There's a lot of different types of psychologists out there. So there are some psychologists who specialize in counseling or assessment of individuals with depression, anxiety, those sorts of things. But another specialty is neuropsychology, which specifically looks at how do changes in the brain influence uh, thinking, behavior, and emotion. And so we're a subspecialty that primarily uh, uh, works with individuals with known or suspected neurological disorders. What an actual neuropsychologist does really depends a lot on the setting that they're in. Uh, I'm primarily a a clinical neuropsychologist, and so my primary responsibilities are in terms of the differential diagnosis of neurological and psychological difficulties. Um, I don't 
personally do a lot of uh, uh, therapy, although there are neuropsychologists who do a lot of, of either counseling or formal cognitive rehabilitation. Uh, and then another big interest of, of mine, as well as a lot of neuropsychologists, is in terms of measuring behavior and uh, uh, mood and cognition for the purposes of research. And so kind of what a neuropsychologist does and then what you do within the field really depends on the setting that you're in. You know, it may be helpful to sort of look at a historical perspective, what caused this field of neuropsychology to develop. And a lot of the database that we work from, of course, was accumulated from the mid-1800s on to the mid-1900s. But after World War II, there were lots of survivors of neurological injuries. And, of course, that's when Dr. Ralph Ray Tan was, had completed his training and was now heading up the probably what would be considered considered the first neuropsychology lab in the country. Um, and uh, after that, uh, you know, after in the in the decades after World War II, neuropsychology was a very important diagnostic tool. CAT scanning was not available, for example. And so there was really no way to image the brain without considerable threat to the well-being of the patient. And then, of course, as death rates in neurological disorders drop precipitously in the 60s, 70s, uh, and on into the 80s. You have a lot of people with neurological disorders alive now who will function in society as well as their neurological condition will allow them to. And so, as a field, you certainly have seen changes in this field in your, what, six years now of being in practice and in my 30 four years, you know, it's been a lot of change in this field. <laughs> oh, most definitely. And I, I would imagine that uh, uh, that's going to continue to evolve. I mean, uh, uh, as our understanding of the brain increases and as people survive things that used to not be survivable, there's an increasing need to, to understand how does, uh, how does the brain, uh, uh, how does the brain with this condition live and respond and thrive in the world. And, and I feel honored to be uh, a part of that field. And I fully suspect that by the time I uh, am 34 years in, what I do will probably look different than what I do now. <laughs> Boy, I do believe that it will. <laughs> and I wish that uh, that I could look ahead and see what we have in the future. The 1990s were considered the decade of the brain. There was a lot of research money put into neuroscientific research. And um, we certainly are reaping the benefits now in terms of our better understanding of, um, uh, for example, neurotransmission and how it takes place, second messenger systems, in other words, what happens to the neuron after it's been stimulated and uh, neural networks and things like that. So it truly has been fascinating. And from my old man perspective, Jared, it has been really hard to keep up with as well. <laughs> yes, I am, I, am, I am rarely bored. There's always something else I need to be reading. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, we have this field of dementia, and um, and as I've pointed out in programs in the past, you know, 20% or so of people over the age of 65 who develop memory problems actually have a reversible disorder. And then of those who do not, you know, there are a number of disorders that come into play, including Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body disorder, vascular dementia, and so many other things. Um, and so the neuropsychological evaluation is 
helpful to differentiate reversible from irreversible and then within those irreversibles, what the likely diagnosis is. So would you help our audience to understand what takes place with a neuropsychological evaluation? Most definitely. It, and it is a little bit different than a lot of appointments uh, uh, that you might have uh, in the medical field. The, the neuropsychological evaluation really consists of, of uh, three parts, if you will. Um, the first part, uh, uh, it involves a very thorough review of the available medical as well as, as other records that are available. A, a neuropsychologist does their job best whenever they're, they're uh, receiving as much information as possible about how that individual is functioning, what sort of conditions may be influencing them, and their overall health status. So in a typical day, uh, being in a large uh, kind of medical center like here, I start my day before I even see the patients reviewing the medical records, looking at MRIs, CAT scans, uh, looking for other neurological exams, and looking at cardiac history, uh, thyroid levels, lab work, that sort of thing. You want to understand as much about the individual's medical status and history as you can. Into that information, kind of the, the next step is uh, a detailed interview with a patient as well as their collateral or a significant other who knows them well. Uh, uh, these conditions and, and thinking in general don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, the, each individual has their own history, uh, uh, their perception of the symptoms, uh, their, their family members' perception of when these things might have got started. And, and so it's very important to understand both the presenting problem, what issue is, is going on with the patient, as well as kind of where that patient came from. In other words, you expect different cognitive profiles in someone who was a pilot uh, versus uh, someone who, uh, you know, was uh, primarily, a, uh, say, a carpenter or uh, an engineer versus a literature professor. So, so each individual's cognitive a pre-morbid status is important to consider as well. And having a collateral, especially uh, if someone has memory problems, is really important because by definition, the patient may have forgotten something that's important for us to know. The third step is the thing that most people think of with neuropsychological testing, which is uh, giving the tests themselves. This uh, can be anywhere from a uh, uh, from a relatively brief battery of tests, an hour or so, up to a full day evaluation, depending on the type of question being asked or what things are on the differential diagnosis. Um, and and I'm sure we'll talk more about the testing here in a bit. But uh, uh, you know, it, it's more than just testing. These test results, your your thinking skills have to be interpreted in the context of your overall medical status and previous workup, uh, as well as your unique history, background, and kind of situation that you're in right now. What does differential diagnosis mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, in terms of differential diagnosis, what you're really saying is, okay, there 
there are thinking problems here. There's the suspicion of thinking problems here. What could it be? And and you've you've hinted at the fact that the the differential uh, that the possible diagnoses can actually be pretty broad. Everything from something that's relatively benign or uh, perhaps reversible uh, to uh, many different subtypes of dementias uh, that you kind of hit on previously. And a neuropsychological testing uh, typically is is one of the kind of most important steps at trying to tease apart which condition may be leading to thinking problems. That's excellent. And when you're talking about um, the interview and history, what kind of information are you looking for there other than the person's maybe intellectual and memory background and things like that? Sure. It, it's really important uh, to kind of get a, a view of the person as a whole. And so typically what I do uh, is is I start off by getting uh, the information about uh, how the patient sees their current thinking abilities, memory, language, visual skills, problem-solving, attention, how they view their current emotional state, uh, and how they view their current physical health. I'll then corroborate that information, again, focusing on the here and now with a collateral, with, with a, a caregiver, someone who knows the patient well. From there, we'll go back through and review the medical history, including uh, things like significant surgeries, significant traumas, previous mental health exposures or previous uh, uh, tra- traumatic injuries. Uh, and we'll also review the family history in detail as well. Finally, it's also important to consider an individual's educational status, uh, their uh, occupational history, and their current social status because these uh, conditions tend to impact not just the patient but the family as a whole. And knowing what resources a patient has available in terms of their family, uh, available social supports, available uh, uh, kind of community settings where they may get some help is really important to provide good care and planning for a, a patient with a potential neuro degenerative condition. Well, thank you. We are talking with Dr. Jared Benj, and we are going to go to a break. Stay with us, and when we return, we'll talk in more detail about what comprises the neuropsychological evaluation. So stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. 
Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking with Dr. Jared Benge about the neuropsychological evaluation, and I'm very grateful to this young man for joining us and lending us the the benefits of his knowledge and experience. Jared, we've had a call emailed in. Um, what part of the three areas in a neuropsychological evaluation are most helpful with diagnosis? Could you address that question? Most definitely. Uh, by far, the most important uh, area to consider is the actual the interview with the patient and the collateral. And uh, what I mean by this is that um, uh, most of your audience is probably familiar with this term of the normal curve uh, or the bell curve. And that's the notion that uh, most things that humans do, there's kind of an average, if you will, and then there's a spread around there uh, where uh, there are kind of strengths and weaknesses. Well, when it comes to thinking abilities, normal is awfully big. Uh, In other words, some weaknesses, everybody has some strengths and weaknesses in their thinking, and so, uh, uh, so when it comes to cognitive testing, if you just give tests, you may overinterpret a finding uh, because you, you may call something that's actually normal for that person abnormal. So, so you don't just want to give tests in isolation. By the same token, a, a medical record review that you know, only looks at stuff like lab work or imaging uh, isn't going to tell you how those things are actually functioning. Um, looking at a picture of the brain tells you a lot of information, but it doesn't tell you how that brain is thinking. So that information by itself is, is, is only of partial value. So in the interview, when you see where the person has came, come from, what they're experiencing day to day, how they're reacting to the difficulties that they're having, what a collateral is noticing, you, you're instantly generating hypotheses about what might be going on with their behavior. You're making educated guesses about what you might see. And then you use the other data from the medical record and from testing to test those hypotheses. Uh, in other words, you're, you're not just uh, uh, going in there blind. You're developing a 
theory, a brain behavior theory about what could be going on with this person, and then you use the other data to test that theory. So, so when I one of one of the things I, I feel very lucky to do out here is to train our, our fellowship, uh, our our postdoctoral fellows in neuropsychology, and I, I am always on them that before you give a test, you should you should have a clear hypothesis and a clear idea of why you're giving that test. Uh, you should listen and you should think. Uh, before you start uh, pulling out things from the filing cabinet. Spoken like a uh, researcher-clinician combination. <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> I really admire what you have become. <laughs> uh, I, I, I practice what I have had preached to me a time or two, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now the patient is referred, let's say, for this cognitive testing, for some type of standardized testing of their abilities. So what happens during that process? Sure, sure. It, it, it can seem a little overwhelming, and, and sometimes I think uh, uh, we can demystify it a, a little bit. Uh, like I said, uh, so how it works with me, typically I'll get a patient in. Uh, at uh, They usually come in about 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I'll uh, sit down with them uh, and their caregiver, and we spend about an anywhere from an hour to two hours kind of going through their, uh, their history, their presenting problems, any questions I have from the available medical records, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, most of the time that takes about an hour. Sometimes it takes a little more. From there, uh, what we do is uh, some kind of basic screening uh, things. I, I uh, Before you, you evaluate someone's thinking, you want to make sure that they can, for example, see. One of the problems that happens a lot in aging is uh, macular degeneration or cataracts or just reduced visual acuity in general. Before you measure someone's visual spatial skills, it's a good idea to make sure that they can see uh, the materials you're going to present. Uh, before you measure how well they remember things you tell them, it's important to make sure they can hear. Um, but you also want to do a detailed motor examination to make sure that there's no uh, potentially confounding motor issues uh, at play as well. Um, and then, then comes the testing. And uh, the testing is, uh, uh, I, I think it's kind of interesting. It's usually something that uh, you don't do uh, every day. As a matter of fact, uh, you need to let your neuropsychologist know if you've seen or taken tests previously because it may change how you do the test. Uh, the tests themselves may seem kind of silly, uh, but there is a method to the madness. If, if you imagine uh, your, your thinking abilities are... Uh, really uh, complicated and interrelated. So imagine, if you will, memory. To remember something that's new actually requires at least three steps. So if you think of your memory like a filing cabinet, the first step is you have to put the file into the filing cabinet. We call that encoding. Then a process has to happen behind the scenes, which is called consolidation. That's where the file gets tagged and, and it has to remain in the file, in the cabinet. And when you need it later, uh, you have to be able to pull that file out and, and uh, uh, be able to pull out the correct file. So take something that simple. I give you some words and I, I ask you to remember them and I come back and I tell you 20 minutes later. You could have a problem with that. You could have a problem with memory at any one of those steps, encoding, consolidation, or retrieval. 
So neuropsychological tests uh, uh, require us to break these complicated thought processes like uh, language, visual spatial skills, memory, attention, down into their individual parts. We try to measure those individual parts, and then we compare those uh, scores that we get against individuals of a similar age, education, and gender to look for things that are statistically out of the ordinary. Uh, so, so uh, in, in the broad sense, uh, you do the interview, and then you do uh, uh, these tests, uh, and then you may be done uh, after anywhere from you know anywhere from an hour to five hours. Again, depending on the question that's being asked or uh, the individual's current status, uh, and then. Uh, the process is not done. Your part is done, uh, but then the hard part starts for the neuropsychologist in terms of actually running the statistics, looking for things that are out of the ordinary, and pulling together the information to make a brain-behavior relationship. And then typically we bring the patients either back if we can't get it done on the same day uh, uh, to go over the results together. Uh, so it can be a pretty hectic day, a pretty busy day up front uh, with several hours of testing. Uh, and then even once the patient leaves, there's usually several hours more work uh, to do in terms of pulling together all of that information. Thank you for that thorough description. And so you look at memory, for example, and you say, okay, we can break this down into encoding, consolidation, retrieval, and the same would apply to other types of cognitive domains as well, where you look at the overall area, but also look at the components that give rise to that overall skill development. What are the other domains that a neuropsychologist typically looks at? Most definitely. And so uh, the biggies, if you will, uh, are uh, things like uh, language. Within language, there are several kind of important domains. One is semantics or word knowledge. Uh, one is actual production of verbal, uh, of verbal information. And then comprehension. We'll also sometimes look at, at reading uh, and math uh, and writing, depending upon the question that's being asked. The next domain is attention. Within attention, there's several different subtypes. Uh, there are things like divided attention. Uh, there are things like sustained attention, uh, and there are things like alternating attention. Uh, there are, there's another set of visual spatial skills, which typically looks at the ability to, uh, for your brain to interpret visual information. This includes information about uh, what we call the what, uh, which is uh, can your brain pull together visual details to determine what something is, as well as the where. Can your brain break down uh, kind of where in space the person, the body, a stimulus may be? Uh, we also look at executive functioning, uh, which is kind of a catch-all term. Uh, executive functions are some of the most fascinating things I think we as neuropsychologists look at, but they're some of the hardest to divide uh, or to uh, some of the hardest to define. I, I think of executive functions a lot like executives in a company. Uh, in a company, you have the actual workers who are down on the floor making things, getting stuff done, cleaning things up, and your brain certainly has parts like that. But the executives uh, sit at the top and kind of think about a plan, a vision, uh, resource allocation, those sorts of things. And so executive functions in your brain are the processes that pull together the individual parts of thinking uh, and uh, uh, look at stuff like 
multitasking, planning, goal-directed behavior. Again, some of the most complicated things we as humans do, some of the hardest things to measure and measure accurately. We'll also look at things like mood, personality, and behavior, uh, depending upon the needs of the, uh, of the case at play. Uh, at least you'll get asked questions about mood and screening for mood. Uh, sometimes you get more in-depth evaluations. And, and for the caregivers who brought you, you're usually not off the hook. Usually I'll make you do some questionnaires as well, <laughs> uh, trying to get more precise information about the patient. Well, that's an excellent discussion. We're going to go to break in just a few seconds here. And when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk with you more about executive functions. They are so critically important to so many different aspects of life. And as you said, they are complicated. They are difficult to define. Um, It's awfully difficult to measure them in a real direct sense. So it takes a lot of indirect measurement. And uh, and so I think that we might have a, a very fascinating discussion about that. So we are going to go to a break, and when we return, we will talk with Dr. Jared Benj about executive functioning. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. 
Welcome back. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and our guest is Dr. Jared Benj, neuropsychologist with Scott and White Clinic, um, a uh, diplomate of the American Board of Professional Psychology, and a very, very intelligent young man who has been willing to give us the the benefits of his knowledge and experience. You know, I really liked your definition of um, executive functions in terms of a factory, and I've often used used the example of General Motors or what is now called government motors, I guess, but um, in which you have, for example, a body shop, an engine shop, you have a drivetrain shop, a, a paint shop, all these different kinds of things, and then you have a central office that makes sure that all the correct parts show up at the same, at the right place at the right time to put a car together. So each of these individual shops can be working wonderfully, but if the executive organization of it is not working, then uh, you don't have a good final product. And so I, I really like the explanation that you used as well. No, no. It, it, these are these are incredible, incredibly complex behaviors. In, in some ways, they're some of the core things that make humans humans, and and yet they're uh, incredibly difficult to to define and and uh, and to to measure sometimes. When we think about uh, forming an intention or formulating a goal, keeping track of our our progress toward a goal, uh, stopping and redirecting, all of these things are about executive functions, aren't they? Most definitely. You know, you can, you can kind of think about um, uh, executive functions uh, in terms of having a, a few broad components. Okay, so uh, one of the uh, the first components is the notion of uh, being able to learn from feedback. Uh, so, so in other words, uh, uh, humans, the human brain is a remarkably course correcting thing. Uh, in other words, if something does not work, uh, uh, the organism should learn that hey, what we just tried didn't work, and uh, we should try something different. And so that's what, what most people, uh, most normally functioning brains do once they reach maturity. However, in neurological conditions, sometimes you can get uh, an aspect of executive dysfunction known as perseveration, where uh, behavior is repeated over and over again uh, despite being given feedback that, that what you're doing isn't working. Um, and so that's, that's kind of one aspect of executive dysfunction that we tend to look at. Uh, another issue that can come up with executive functions, and, and you hinted at this well, is the notion of inhibition. Uh, so, so if you um, uh, if you think about it, a lot of a lot of times, what uh, we spend most, what our brain is doing, is actively telling us not to do something. Uh, so, if you if you get cut off in traffic, or if someone's being a jerk to you at, at work, or someone uh, uh, bumps into you in the grocery store, uh, your your brain is having to actively tell the deeper, older parts not. To do something, don't react, don't fly off the handle. Inhibition of behavior is a critical uh, thing to kind of look at, being able to, to say what not to do. Uh, and again, in individuals with neurological conditions, sometimes you will see them become disinhibited. They, they will tend to react quickly, uh, even if they feel bad about it later. Uh, you also, uh, and, and these are some of the trickiest things to measure, is the notion of integrating a, a goal, uh, an emotional goal, uh, with behavior. 
In other words, can you keep in mind what you want to have happen and modify your behavior uh, uh, as well as the behavior of others to reach that goal? Now, in recent years, kind of added to this uh, notion of executive functions have come stuff like theory of mind or social cognition. That is the brain's ability uh, to to put yourself in another's perspective. Uh, uh, so you can you can think about uh, uh, someone who may have a difficulty being able to uh, see the world or know if I say this thing, it will hurt their feelings. That's an, uh, a notion of a theory of mind, which is a part of executive functioning as well. Um, and so uh, along with this, one of, one of the most important aspects of executive function, one of the things that's most troubling to caregivers is when you have a breakdown of awareness or metacognition. Uh, these are the abilities to think about thinking, uh, uh, which is one of the most complicated things that your brain does. So in a lot of neurological conditions, what you'll see is that the patient very clearly has problems, but has no idea that they have problems. They have no awareness. And this is another aspect of a breakdown of kind of self-regulating mechanisms. Again, using the factory analogy, you can imagine a, a factory that just keeps producing bumpers, but they haven't produced an engine in years, and the, the executives don't really think that's a problem. Um, and uh, you can imagine how out of balance that factory would get. And well, again, that's, that's such an excellent example. Yeah, it, 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 they can be devastating uh, things to, to see and for families to deal with, but it's not the patient being obstinate. It's, it's a reflection of, of brain pathology in a lot of cases. So on the one hand, we may have an individual who has memory difficulties. And so we have all experienced memory failure. We know what it's like to have more information available to us than we can really uh, keep in our minds. And and so we will forget at times. Forgetting is a uh, obviously a very important neurocognitive ability, you know. And, um, and so if I have a memory problem and I know it, I will make notes. I'll refer to my calendar more. I'll ask people to remind me and things like that. If I have a memory problem and I think that my memory function is normal, in other words, I don't see a memory problem, what kinds of problems come up then? Well, you, you tend to see a lot of different things that can come up. On one hand, you'll see people uh, who uh, can get rather combative or dismissive of attempts to help. Uh, so, in other words, you, you may see people who uh, uh, don't feel that they have a memory problem, and so uh, a, a kindly offer to help or to assist is rebuffed. I don't need that help. Uh, you may also see people... Um, uh, who are, are kind of have intact social skills, uh, but have no awareness of their memory problems, uh, uh, get by on social graces. So it's not uncommon, uh, you know, if you think about most of your interactions in your day-to-day -day life, uh, they're brief, there's not a lot of follow-up, they only last for a few minutes. And so sometimes I'll see older individuals who have been, uh, in retrospect, developing a dementia for years, where, because they're, say, 
family lived out of town or no one was around to check on them, they begin to neglect themselves. They don't realize the depth of, of problems that they're having. And because the interactions are, are brief and, and socially nice day to day, they never ask for help. Um, and, and so while those are extreme examples, kind of the, the whole uh, spectrum uh, from, A, I don't have a memory problem, so I'm not going to use a calendar, to significant self-neglect and combativeness, that whole spectrum uh, is a result of the interaction of, say, a memory problem and a reduction in awareness. You know, this person that is not aware of memory deficits but does have good social language and can make small talk well and present well really presents significant obstacles in the overall situation. For example, if law enforcement becomes involved because of um, an upset in a home or something along those lines, uh, law enforcement is more likely to believe that this individual is neurologically normal and the family is just being overly controlling and upsetting that person. So we see that kind of thing happen. Um, Also, this concept of awareness of deficits, you know, we use this term anosognosia, which uh, has its root in the the Greek uh, concept of gnosis, you know, of knowing something. So not knowing that you don't know. The difference between anosognosia, a neurologically based thing, and psychological denial, how would you differentiate those two? (laughs) <laughs> and and you hit at one of those things that keeps me awake at night. Uh, <laughs> That's right. I didn't want to make this too easy for you, Jerry. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Yeah, you're going to make me earn my keep. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it can be it can be a really difficult um, uh, kind of uh, thing to to differentiate if if you don't know what you're looking for or if you have limited information. Uh, and so uh, uh, one of the things that uh, that is helpful is the actual process of testing itself. Uh, so most doctor's visits and even most family visits last only a few minutes. So when you look at a person over the course of a whole day uh, or over the course of several hours, uh, it's harder to hide deficits or hide behind kind of social niceties or, or these sorts of things. Uh, and so it's, it's also uh, really helpful sometimes when I'm going through and I'm doing testing with someone uh, to actually ask uh, them how they think that they're doing. Uh, so, so sometimes I'll even have patients predict, hey, I'm about to read a list of 12 words to you. How many do you think that you'll get uh, at delay? Uh, and typically, individuals who have, have reduced awareness of their deficits tend to overestimate uh, uh, their, their performances. Uh, in terms of, uh, of psychological denial, uh, now, if you, if you walk into a, a room full of psychologists and, and yell uh, defense mechanisms and, and walk out, uh, <laughs> you'll, start, you'll start a fight that will never end. But in, in psychological aspects of denial, uh, typically you'll look for other features such as depressed mood or other affective responses, as well as, uh, you know, relative preservation of day-to-day activities. Uh, so, so you, again, the interview can be really helpful at teasing apart what may be related to an underlying psychological disorder, what may be related to a neurological problem. I'm quick to add, though, that as we learn more and more about the so-called psychological disorders, you can't have a psychological disorder without a brain. Uh, a lot of uh, psychological disorders 
are neurocognitive disorders. They just may be more treatable, more amenable to treatment, but it doesn't mean that some of the same underlying brain networks aren't involved. Well, that's a very good point, and I appreciate you bringing that into the discussion. And so, wrapping up what we've covered this segment, basically, the neuropsychological evaluation will cover a number of different cognitive areas, will break down these areas into component parts, and then we look at the pattern of breakdown of different skill areas and hope on the basis of that to hypothesize some type of a neurological or psychological diagnosis that will give uh, an avenue for treatment. So, um, thank you for that very good overview. We are going to go to break and please stay with us. We will return for our final segment in just a couple of minutes. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us, ladies and gentlemen. We're having a 
an enjoyable discussion with Dr. Jared Benge regarding neuropsychology in the um, evaluation and management of the dementias. And obviously, under the heading of dementias, there are a lot of disorders. Right before the break, I mentioned that depending on the pattern of test performance, which would show a pattern of breakdown in different skill areas and different uh, subcomponents of those breaking down characteristic patterns, we would hope to be able to come up with the appropriate diagnosis. The question, Dr. Jared Benge, that I would like to address to you now is basically this. Who uses neuropsychological test data? In other words, what you've studied the patient, you've interviewed the patient, you have measured a lot of different abilities, you've studied that up in detail, and and now something is going to happen as a result of that. Other than the differential diagnosis, what happens with the test data? Most definitely, and, and uh, uh, frankly, this is, is, I think, the most important part of the, of the evaluation is, is answering this question, how does this change outcomes? And it, it, it tends to change outcomes for patients in a lot of different ways. First of all, one of the things that I always try to do is to sit down and give feedback to the patient as well as their family members about what I think is, uh, what I saw in testing, what I think that says is going on from the brain, uh, but then also to uh, give recommendations about what might be helpful in terms of both the here and now. So these are other things to follow up with your physicians about. These are things uh, that may help from a medical end. This is uh, this is what the research says in terms of, uh, you know, reducing your risk of decline. Uh, these are sorts of uh, uh, kind of compensatory strategies that you might might use every day to get around, say, an executive problem or an attention problem or a memory problem. And Jared, uh, let me inter- let me interject yeah. for just a second how much I appreciate that you sit down and talk with the patient and the family. I know that um, with the Alzheimer's Association, for example, their, uh, um, their early stage um, work groups have really been frustrated that people do not talk as much and as directly to them as they do to others, or they may not talk to even the family very much about um, the specific findings and the implications. So I appreciate that you take the time to do that. Oh, it's it's critical. It's one thing to have all of this knowledge about an individual person, but if you can't get in, you know, I, the patient's going to leave my office, and the best way to improve their outcomes is not going to come from some miracle thing I say, but can I give tools to the patient and the person who's with the patient to help modify the behaviors or to avoid problems? And so, uh, really, the caregivers are... Uh, they're the hands and feet of, of uh, uh, really dementia treatment and dementia uh, prevention, and they're, they're critical. And so they, they absolutely are. So, so giving that feedback and, and uh, you know, spending time to the, with the patient and family is uh, hugely important. Uh, depending on the referral source, uh, we may uh, uh, give uh, more specific details. I, I, out here, I tend to get referrals from 
neurologists, uh, geriatricians, and geriatric psychiatrists, and, and they're usually pretty familiar with neuropsychological testing and results. And so it, in those cases, I can tend to uh, uh, be able to uh, send the report on and know that they'll follow through with it. Sometimes they'll have individual questions and come back and ask about a particular uh, intervention recommendation or, or referral. Some uh, primary care physicians that I work with like to have a lot more collaborative relationship, uh, you know, coming back and asking more specific questions. Uh, and, and Dr. Brinkman, you, we were talking a little bit off the air. It sounds like you have some really good, tight, collaborative relationships with uh, uh, referring physicians out there. Yes, I have been uh, very fortunate to have such a wonderful working relationship with the physicians, and we team up well, we share ideas, we disagree when we need to, we uh, work out a common language or vocabulary to describe what's happening with a patient. So that's been a, um, a real uh, a real positive thing in my career here. Um, are you families will sometimes ask you other things driving, for example. Most will family. Yes. Would you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. It's, you know, when you look at something like these real-world abilities, things like driving, uh, things like the ability to live independently, uh, these are, are some of the most important questions that we get asked, but again, some of the more difficult ones that we, that we need to answer. When it comes to stuff like a driving evaluation or, or should this person continue to drive, there are a few guidelines that are out there in the field. Uh, so, for example, um, individuals who are more than mildly uh, demented, have more than a mild dementia, are typically not, uh, uh, it's not indicated to drive. People that have a condition that fluctuates, so uh, dementia with Lewy bodies can have kind of rapid on-off periods uh, that can make uh, uh, driving unsafe. Uh, and then the most common thing, though, that we see is uh, slowed visual motor processing, the ability to rapidly, as I tell my patients, if you can't drive a pencil around a piece of paper as quick as other people your age, you probably shouldn't be driving a couple-ton car uh, out there. (laughs) I have not heard it expressed quite that way before. (laughs) That's very good. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, you got to pass the pencil first. You know, in terms of predicting driving outcomes, there's an upper limit. Uh, Crashes and those sorts of really horrible things are relatively low-frequency events, and so uh, predicting things that don't happen all that often is really hard. However, I tend to lay it out there, say, these are the guidelines that, uh, uh, that would recommend you drive or not drive. If you disagree with me, you need to get more data, and, and here's how you can get it. And so I might refer to someone who can do a behind-the-wheel evaluation or a driving rehabilitation specialist uh, because you, you want to take these things seriously. A, a patient doesn't want to assume the liability for driving when they've had people tell them not to um, and and so uh, if they're going to disagree, I encourage them to disagree with data and not just because they want to. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, there are so many decisions that family members need to make, um, primary care physicians need to ba- make about what a patient can do and can't do. And what generally is lacking is good measurement data. And if you do not have data, you know, it, it becomes very suggestive, uh, I'm sorry, subjective and um, can become a very argumentative situation. So I think that you are 
are exactly right in what you're saying there. Would you ag address just briefly, say in 30 seconds or less also, the general concept of competency? Most definitely. So, so uh, bottom line, uh, you have to make a distinction between capacity, how do I think your thinking abilities will influence your day-to-day -day life and ability to make decisions, versus competency, which is a legal definition, a yes-no. Uh, basically, as a clinician, I view someone's capacity as uh, what can they do, what sort of supports may help them function better and as independently as possible. However, capacity evaluations are, are uh, typically something that the ultimate decision is made by court, holding someone's abilities as assessed by uh, providers, families, and other sources of data against a legal standard. And that becomes a yes-no question in a hurry uh, and one that you're uh, best need to get an elder uh, elder care attorney for. <laughs> excellent answer. Excellent distinction between capacity and competency, and I appreciate you bringing that up. And speaking of competency and driving and things like that, next week we have a program that will specifically address elder law, and our guest will be Bradley Fregon from Denver, a former president of the American Association of Elder Law Attorneys, and I think that that will be a very informative program program. Uh, elder law, um, competency, power of attorney, all of these kinds of things are complicated for people who have never encountered these concepts before. And it is my hope that Mr. Fergon will be able to uh, make these things understandable and give people very reasonable guidelines. Additionally, uh, in a few weeks, we are going to have a program specifically on addressing the spiritual needs of older individuals with cognitive decline. So, Dr. Benj, thank you so much for giving us your time. I uh, am so grateful to you for my relationship with you over the years, and uh, uh, I hope that you'll be back on at some point. That is all that we have for today. I thank you for listening to us. Hope that uh, this program has been informative to you, and I will be back with you next week. Thank you for listening to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.